I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. If you are new to the Bible and don't quite know how to get around in it, there should be a Bible in the pew in front of you, and Philippians 4 is on page 982 of that Bible. And uh, we'll begin reading there at verse 2, and we will read through verse 9. As you're turning there, got an email from uh, Mark Billington just yesterday uh, that his bride Jill and one of their sons is traveling here uh, because Marsha Ernst, who we're partners with as well, Um, has been diagnosed with an advanced form of cancer and they are coming to spend what they think will be the last time with them to say goodbye. So as we pray for our sermon, we're going to take just a moment and pray for them as well. But first let me read the text. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 to 9. This is what the Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. To agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word, and even as we read about not being anxious in anything, We know that could be a very real battle for Rich and Marcia Ernst, for the Billingtons. Oh God, we pray that you would safely bring Jill and her son to her mother's side, that it would be a sweet time together. We thank you for the hope of Jesus, that even in the midst of sorrow there can be rejoicing in him that he has not forgotten his promises and he has not forgotten his people. God, I pray you will sustain and help Rich as he serves her, as he gives medication and cares for her, even as he himself has dealt with cancer for some time. Lord, we pray that you will be glorified through that circumstance. We do pray, God, if it would please you that you would bring relief. We thank you for so many times that we know that you have answered that prayer and that you have mercifully granted relief. And we pray that you would do that for Marcia as well. 
We pray now as we look to your word that we will look to it with ears that have been opened by you and hearts that are opened by your spirit to hear and to receive what you've said, to love it, to believe it, to live according to it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. There are times when you're reading letters that Paul has written that you get these kind of rapid-fire, short commands in succession, just one after another. Paul does it in 1 Thessalonians 5, he does it in Romans 12, he does it in Ephesians 4 and 5, just kind of boom, 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 one after the other. It kind of reminds you of kind of those, uh, those last-minute words that parents may say to a babysitter right before they walk out the door, right? You know, make sure the toys get cleaned up. And, uh, you know, Timmy likes to put things down the drain, so keep an eye on him. And watch out for Billy. He's a runner, you know, these kinds of things. And they're just these fast, boom, boom, boom kinds of things as they walk out the door to just have like 45 minutes of relief eating food they'd prefer not to eat at McDonald's. I mean, they just want to go somewhere and eat something uh, and, and have some time. But that seems to be what Paul is doing here. There are these rapid-fire commands, and it may seem at first that there's no binding thread to them. I hope to convince you by the end that there is a binding thread that holds these together. But before I do that, I want us to begin by just walking through them one at a time to look at what Paul says, as it were, as he's walking out the door um, of this letter. First, he tells them to pursue right relationships. Listen to verses 2 and 3. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul does something that he doesn't normally do. Usually when Paul brings up names, it's usually to greet them. Make sure you greet so-and-so for me, and so-and-so, and, you know, make sure you appreciate this household and that one. And there are times, yes, that he'll use a name for warnings. You know, remember he told Timothy to watch out for Demas. But usually it's not something like this. He gets very, very specific, and he addresses these two women Now, what can we actually know about them? Well, first, we know that they're Christians. Now, just prior to this, remember, Paul was talking about those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, but he doesn't talk about these women this way. In verse 3, he says that their names are written in the book of life, which is a way to say they are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. More than that, Paul says that they are fellow workers. I mean, one wonders as you think about this, I wonder if they were among the... That, you remember that little prayer group that was at the side of the river in Acts chapter 16 and Paul and Silas and Mark, after a vision that Paul's received, come to Macedonia and they come to Philippi, they come to the riverside and here's this group of women praying and so Paul preaches and you remember Lydia comes to faith in Jesus there in Acts 16. I just, I just wonder because I'm curious whether Euodia and Syntyche might have been there. It's possible. But either way, once they came to faith in Jesus, they took up the cause. They became fellow workers. They are, they are treasured by Paul here. I mean, praise God for women who work hard 
for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the church, who seek to honor the Lord and advance the cause of Christ. You know, there are many churches actually in the world that would be dead at this moment were it not for the prayers and the witness and the work of the faithful women in that congregation. And so I would encourage you, I mean, I thank God for you ladies of Gray Road. I'm so thankful for your prayers. I'm thankful for the way you encourage one another. I'm thankful for the way you serve one another. I'm thankful for the way that you're so involved in ministry. Keep it up. Stay steady in it. The kingdom of God, you are valuable to the advance of the kingdom of God, so keep it up. And that's what Paul is basically referring to these women as. They are important to the church and they're important to him. They're his fellow workers. But as for the actual circumstance, Paul doesn't tell us. Now, that doesn't seem fair, does it? We live, we 21st century Americans, we like to be able to get information just like that. I mean, you can Google it all you want. Google's not going to tell you what was going on with Euodia and Syntyche. But we live in this 24-hour news cycle where something breaks and then more information just comes, you know, over hours and hours. And sometimes it's breaking news Uh, I mean, uh, that basically, you know, corrects the spelling of a word that was said four hours ago. You know, that's that's how big the breaking news is. When you're in a 24-hour news cycle, everything can't be breaking news or else nothing is breaking news. All right? But that's what we're like. We like to get information. We like it flowing in. And Paul doesn't say anything about that. But could you imagine if Euodia and Syntyche were in this room right now and we're the church at Philippi and I'm just reading the letter for us? And there they are. And then I read, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche. And all the eyes get big, right? And they kind of look sideways, like I'm not turning my head, but I'm looking in the direction of you, Odia. And some are looking over here at Syntyche. It's quite a bold move on Paul's part. You must know these women very well. It must be the kind of thing that Paul would say to people. That he'd have such a relationship that speaking to them in this way wouldn't be unusual. If he were there himself, he'd probably just say it. But the the circumstance he doesn't even bring up. The Philippians know, but we don't. Apparently, the problem doesn't lie in the circumstance. Isn't that interesting? A problem, it's not, the problem isn't apparently the issue. I have found this to be true over and over and over again in talking with people. The issue is almost never the issue. There is almost always something behind it. And here, what's behind it? is that the problem lies not in the circumstance, the problem lies in these women. And so he entreats them that they should agree in the Lord. Notice he entreats both of them. He intentionally repeats the verb, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. Why? Because he's not taking sides. He's in this for the sake of the church, for the glory of the Lord, for the good of both of these ladies. Both need to be listening. And he says they need to agree in the Lord. Now, this is language that actually we've read, though 
it didn't have that exact English phrasing. These words were used back in chapter 2. Just flip a page backwards there. In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. When he says being of the same mind, that's this agree in the Lord. Then he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. There's the language again. Share this mindset with Jesus. So, what is the mindset? It's the things that come between there, between two and five. And what comes between two and five? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But count others as more important than yourselves. Look out not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. So what Paul had said in Philippians chapter 2, he is now saying specifically to these two folks in chapter 4. He's saying, my dear friends, Euodia, Syntyche, stop seeking your own way. Turn from your pride. Come back to the mindset of Christ who humbled Himself to serve. Make things right. Now you'll be glad to know I don't plan on calling any, of, any two names in this congregation this morning. But I will tell you this. Prioritizing right relationships is crucial for the Christian. Do you remember what Paul said in Romans 12? As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Friend, I don't know who it may be. There may be somebody in this congregation that you are at odds with. And both of you have basically refused to agree in the Lord. Well, I would entreat you and I would entreat the other person not to give up on that relationship, but to humble yourself and ask the Lord where you need to change, where you need to grow. Seek forgiveness. Make things right. Agree in the Lord. Share the mindset of Christ. Humble yourself. Don't cross your arms and say, I'm not making a move until that person makes the first move. Because the other person may not just be in this congregation. The other person may actually live in your house. The other person may share the bedroom with you. And to cross your arms and say, well, I'm not humbling myself until she humbles herself. Friends, this isn't the heart that's prepared to humble itself at all. This is pride. Pride, plain and simple. So he says, pursue right relationships. And notice that it may actually take someone outside of Euodia and outside of Syntyche. Did you notice that in verse 3? He said, my true companion, help these women. Help them. Don't be so proud 
We should not be so proud as to think, well, we don't need anybody's help outside of us. Do you know how, marriage, how many marriages go down in flames because that is the prideful attitude of the husband and the wife? We can just do this. We can just get through this. We don't need anybody helping us. We don't need to talk to anyone. We're okay. I've got my Bible. I listen to sermons. I listen to podcasts. And yet the Bible is calling this one who's a true companion, likely a pastor in the church, that's what I think, to help these women, to help them. Because sometimes we need help. Because sometimes, did you know that the two people coming to the table in the conflict, both are blind to actually what they're doing wrong sometimes? And sometimes in God's kindness, it just is helpful to have a third person to say, I don't think you're seeing this. And I don't think you're seeing this. Don't you think the Lord would want that to change? Pursue right relationships. The second, things he, the second thing he tells them is always rejoice. This is one of the things we think of when we think of the letter to the Philippians, isn't it? Is that old song? Rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice. I couldn't get that out of my head this week. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. I'm sure there were motions with it at some point, but I don't know what they were. And I'm actually kind of glad I can't remember what they were. So don't come to me after this service to show me what they were, if you love me, all right? (laughs) But always rejoice. Now, Paul first said this back in Philippians 3, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, Uh, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Well, obviously writing the same thing is no problem because Paul doesn't only write the same thing again, he writes the same thing after he writes the same thing again. Apparently, Paul wants us walking around with these words in our mind, rejoice in the Lord, always. Rejoice in the Lord always. In case you didn't hear it, I'll say it again. Rejoice. Now, biblical commands are not given to us to reaffirm things that we already can do naturally. God doesn't need to command us to breathe. God doesn't need to command us to eat, right? I assume God doesn't need to command you to eat. We just eat. But something like this, rejoicing in the Lord always, this is not something that comes naturally. This is not something that people just wake up doing, always rejoicing in the Lord. It is something that is supernatural. Now, we may have joy in good circumstances, right? I mean, good circumstances are good. Aren't you happy when good things happen? Aren't you? I mean, you, you, the, the, the boss calls you in to give you a promotion and pat you on the back and say your salary is increased by X, X percent or whatever it is, and you go, okay, <laughs> I guess I'll take it. You know, people, people have that kind of response to circumstances, but, but here's the thing. Anyone can have joy in that circumstance, can't they? Anyone can just say yes about that and just be lifted up and rejoicing and joyful and happy and pleased and glad. That is not uniquely Christian. 
when things go well, to be glad about it is not uniquely Christian. Unbelievers are thankful for good things. New jobs and promotions and children born and peaceful seasons in marriage. They'll even sometimes call these things blessings. The interesting thing is that when we are in good times as Christians, I think it's actually hard to discern what the root of our joy actually is. I think it's hard to tell. Is it because life is going the way that I'd like it to right now? Or is it the Lord? But do you know there's one surefire way to know if your joy is in the Lord? It's for the circumstances to change. It's for things to not go the way that you would want them to go. It's for things to go wrong when life isn't what I planned or what I wanted. And circumstances are like that, aren't they? Sometimes they change and they align with what you'd like the world to be like, and you're very pleased with that. And sometimes they change in ways that this is not how I wanted my world to be this week. And what will happen then? And Paul says, no matter what comes our way, rejoice in the Lord, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of pain, in the midst of turmoil. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, how are we supposed to do that? Doesn't that sound difficult to you? Just think about this week. I look across here and I see the faces of people who in recent days and weeks and months have entered into tremendous seasons of hardship. How are you to do this? How are you to rejoice in the Lord always? Paul is not asking you to just paste on a fake smile to kind of fake it, fake it till you make it Christianity. That is not what he's saying. So how do you do it? Well, let me give some help. If our rejoicing is to be in the Lord, then there must be something about the Lord that is going to help me to rejoice. So it seems it would be a good idea for me to just rehearse the truth of God, about God, to my soul. To say things, even out loud, that are true. God, you are holy. Just driving down the road. Just the other day, I did this. God, you are holy. You are good. You are sovereign. You are merciful. You work all things for your glory and for my good. You haven't left me. You haven't forsaken me. And you never will. You've placed me in the church with brothers and sisters to walk through life with me, to help me. Lord Jesus, you have taken away my sin. You have taken all of the wrath that I deserve and you have taken it in yourself on the cross. You have conquered sin and death and hell. You have given me your Holy Spirit so that you are with me always. And that is a guarantee of my eternal life. You have given me hope. And nothing that happens today will change any of that. There is no headline that changes that. There is no act of Congress that changes that. There is no Supreme Court decision that changes that. There is no diagnosis 
that changes that. There is no prognosis that changes that. There is no tragedy that changes that. There is no sin against me that changes that. Nothing that happens today will separate me from your love. Nothing that happens today can diminish the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. Not even one little bit. Do you remember in John 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, I'm going to go and you're going to be sorrowful. But then when I come back, you're going to have joy and you're going to have joy that no one can take away. Something about a risen Savior and Lord makes it impossible for anyone to take away joy, which means that the only way as a Christian that I can lose it is to forfeit it, is to look for the root of my joy somewhere other than the unchanging, unshakable truth about who God is and about what He's done for me in Christ Jesus. And that is the way we rejoice in the Lord always. You wonder why your daily Bible reading is so important. Don't you some days wonder that? Why is this so important that I'm reading this? Why is it that I'm doing this? I mean, am I really doing it just to check things off? No, 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 no. We don't read the Bible so that we can say we read the Bible. We don't even read the Bible just to learn about God. We, we, read, we read the Bible to encounter God, to know Him, to, to grip once again to the truth about who He is. Why? Because everything that day needs to be seen in the light of who He is and what He has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just this weekend, the deacons and elders went away for about 24 hours, and we worked our way through most of a study called Good and Angry. It's about the fact that God wants us to be holy, and there are, we need to be very aware that most of our anger is not righteous anger. And, at, and just yesterday afternoon, before we got in the vehicles to come back, I told the guys, I, I just want you to know that this is kind of how the Lord works in my life, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if He did it for you. There's going, there could be something by the end of this day, this week, that is not going to go the way that you wanted it to go. Can I tell you, I got home, I got in, the, I got in our Honda Pilot, I didn't drive myself. Why? Because the truck that I've just purchased that needed a little work was ready. <laughs> so I, after two weeks, so I got in the Honda Pilot. I'm like, yes, we're going to go out there. I'm going to drive this truck home. It's not going to be perfect. There's something I still need to do, but that's stuff I can handle later. Yes. I get out there. The brake lights are stuck on, and the radio doesn't work. And this morning, because I am perennially cold, I just wanted a little warm air blowing as I drove in early this morning. And do you know, even though the reason that it was at the mechanic was to fix the cabin air system so that when you turn the knobs, it does what it says it will do, 
Do you know that when I turned it to the warm section, you know that red section, that's where it's supposed to be warm, right? I turned it to the red section. And do you know how warm it was? It was about 20 degrees cooler than my breath. It was not warm at all. And so I had the opportunity immediately to determine, to see what would come out of my heart. Whenever we come up against rejoice in the Lord always, and we start talking about that our joy is not in our circumstances, our joy is in the Lord, it is easy to walk out and amen and nod when you've had a great week and you expect this week to be just as great. Of course, rejoice in the Lord always. But then when the phone call comes this afternoon... When the doctor's appointment doesn't go like you thought. When layoffs are announced at your workplace. When the child who seemed to be walking in the Lord turns away. God will give, God gives us opportunities to discover very, very quickly, is my joy in the Lord or is my joy in the fact that my world seems pretty peaceful and ordered right now. Rejoice in the Lord always in the midst of a world gone mad and a life gone off the rails because God never changes. We can rejoice in the Lord always. Even at the hardest times in life. I'm so thankful that Paul wrote this little phrase in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He wrote that he was sorrowful yet always rejoicing there is absolutely a place in the Christian's life for sorrow because the world and life in it are not as it should be but at this very same time there is a place for joy because in the midst of a life that isn't as it should be, God is as He's always been. And He never changes. Next thing He says is be gentle. Be gentle. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now reasonableness here speaks of a gentleness that's marked by grace and patience. Paul tells Titus when he's speaking to the Christians in Crete, that he needs to remind them of this. Titus 3, remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid, avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This gentleness is a mark of godly wisdom in James chapter 3. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. It's one of the qualifications of someone who's going to serve as an elder. That the one who would serve as an overseer must not be violent, but gentle. Now I wonder, if you were just to think about that, where is it that gentleness really shines? Where is it that gentleness is really needed and where it testifies to the grace of God? And I would say that gentleness shines most when a conversation or a circumstance isn't going the way that I'd like it to go. 
You see, as long as my life is ordered the way that I want it, as long as the people around me stay in line with my expectations, as long as everyone understands what, how the kingdom of Toby is meant to operate and they act accordingly, I can be quite gentle. At least, I can seem gentle. But when things go sideways and my world is no longer ordered, when my desires are denied, when my expectations are not met, gentleness can so often go out the window if the demeanor of my soul is determined by my circumstances. But gentleness can't be contingent on circumstances. It must be based on our relationship and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul speaks of the gentleness of Christ. Jesus is gentle with us. He is patient with us when we are weak and when we wander. Aren't you thankful for that? Are you thankful for the gentleness of Jesus? Aren't you thankful that every time your life disorders His desire for your life, He doesn't throw gentleness out the window? Are you thankful for that? We should treasure that trait in our Savior, and we should imitate it. It should be, what Paul says, known to all. So that when your family and when your kids and when your work colleagues and fellow church members think of how you respond to life when it goes poorly, when it goes wrong, when it goes just crazy, they think, you know what? She's just always so reasonable. She's always gentle no matter what happens. Let your reasonableness be known to all. And then the fourth thing, he says, resist anxiety. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Now, in commanding this, Paul is doing nothing different than what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 6, who said, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. According to Jesus and according to Paul, there is no room in the Christian life for one to just resign themselves to these things, to just say, I'm just a worry wart. I just worry all the time. That's just, that's just what I do. I'm just anxious all the time about everything. I'm just always worried about the future. I'm always just anxious about what's going to come. That, that, that's just how I deal with life. What the Lord Jesus and Paul say, no. Worry is a failure to trust God with the uncertainties of the future. There are plenty of uncertainties, aren't there? Do you know how your week's going to go? Tell me, do you know how your week's going to go? No, there's a lot of uncertainty there, isn't there? Who knows what could actually happen this week? And yet to sit here, do you, can you think of one thing that could go poorly this week? All right, well, you've got like, there's, there's your kindling for the fire of worry, right? You're just going to wring your hands next to it. And just... Worry, worry, but what is that? In the midst of that uncertainty, in the midst of not knowing how that's going to go, because we are limited, finite creatures, we fail to trust 
that God will be good and faithful and righteous and just in the midst of that uncertainty. Worry suspects that God might do something wrong here. Worry fails to trust God. And Paul tells us to resist it, and he tells us how. So let's read 6 to 9 real quick. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is uh, sorry, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So first he says to pray. How do we resist anxiety? We pray. We make our requests known to God. But notice how we do it. We do it with thanksgiving. Now why? Why with thanksgiving? Why not with tears? Why not with pleading? Why not with cries of angst? Why is it that thanksgiving is the way we're supposed to come to that prayer? Well, do you know what thanksgiving is? Thanksgiving is when you look backwards in your life, you look at the past, and you see how God has been good and faithful how He has worked in situations to make you more like the Lord Jesus, how He has worked to expose your sin, how He has worked to help grow you as a Christian, how He has not done anything that's actually wrong in your life. And then you look back and you say, thank you, God. And that thanksgiving actually strengthens the faith that then goes to God with this current uncertainty. Because all the things that you thank God for, all of those circumstances, you know before those, you know what they were? Uncertainties. So what Thanksgiving does is it sets the radar right, it sets the paradigm right, that God has been faithful and good and holy and merciful and He has worked. He has not failed to do anything in His Word that He has said He would do. He is trustworthy. Thank you, God. Here is my current situation. And it gives you the boldness to say, you'll be the same God now that you were then. Nothing about you has changed. Everything about my life has changed, but nothing about you has changed. And so I bring my request. But do you see what the goal is? Did you see what the goal of the prayer is? Make your requests known to God. And then in verse, you have to hold it back these days to be able to read it. Verse 7 goes on to tell you the goal. What what are we aiming at? What What is the outcome of this prayer? It's interesting. He doesn't say, let your request be made known to God, and everything you wish would happen in the circumstance will happen. He doesn't say that. God will hop right to it and do whatever it is that you think is best in the circumstance. No, no, no. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Look, 
Having peace when all is well is not beyond understanding, is it? Doesn't everybody seem at peace when all is well? Everything's great in my life. I'm at peace. Peace that surpasses understanding is peace that remains when the, when the heartache remains. Peace that remains when the loss remains. Peace that remains when the pain remains. Peace that remains when that person leaves you. That is beyond understanding. So we pray, but we don't just pray, we think. Verse 8. He lists all of these things, all of these ways that we ought to think. Now, I connect these two because in verse 7, the peace of God guards our hearts and minds. And in verse 9, the the God of peace is with us. Paul is not necessarily making as hard a separation here, I think, as we sometimes do. But he says, we ought to think on things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Well, where do we find such things? We find them in the Scripture. Listen to the way Psalm 19 describes the Scripture. It is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, righteous, and desirable. Sounds close, doesn't it? You see, there's an exchange here. We go to prayer and we empty our anxious thoughts in God's ear through prayer, and then God fills our minds with truth through His Word. If you don't replace the thoughts of uncertainty with thoughts that are true, do you know what will happen? Your mind has a gravitational pull. It does not remain empty. Okay? We, we, are, not, we are not Buddhists who seek to just empty our minds. Because you can't do it. You're going to think about something. So if all I've got is all I keep doing is praying about the thing I'm worried about, 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 I'm worried about it. Done with that. You know what? Well, just gravitation, just go. That will come back and you'll just start turning it over in your mind again. What you have to do is replace those thoughts with things that are true and honorable and just and beautiful, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy, and think on those things. And then third, obey. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. We are to be doers of the Word. We don't just think on the Word, we do the Word. Let me, let me give you one example of a command that if you obey this particular command, it will help you in the battle against anxiety. And it's in Philippians. It's in chapter 2. We actually already read it. It's verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Can I tell you one of the things that happens when we worry? You know what happens when we worry? I become the center of my universe. 
I am worried about my life, what's going to happen to me, what's going to happen to my children, what's going to happen in my life, what's going to happen at my job, what's going to happen in my body, what's going to happen in my, my, my. And we can, when we just get wrapped up in all that, the only thing that I am often thinking about and is me. Do you know how helpful it would be if you considered others more important than yourself? What if you went out and you sought to relieve the stress in someone else's life? You served them. You, took, you decided, Paul has called us to bear one another's burdens. I'm going to do that. Plus, the difficulties of life and the uncertainties of life don't give us license to stop serving. They don't give us license to stop considering others more important than ourselves. The circumstances of life are never a trump card to dismiss the commands of God. Never. So we pray, we think, we obey. So let me run through those four again. Pursue right relationships, always rejoice, be gentle, and resist anxiety. And do it all, verse 5 says, knowing that the Lord is at hand. He is both near to us and His coming is coming. Now, what brings all these together is the circumstance of the Philippians. Do you remember what they're facing? They're facing opposition from outside. They're facing division on the inside. They're facing doctrinal distortion. All things that can lead to broken relationships, withered joy, the absence of gentleness, and increased anxiety. And so Paul doesn't just randomly shoot out four commands. His point to them is, no matter what the circumstances are, you need to do this. In fact, The more that I contemplated this, just turn back in your Bible, and this is where we'll finish. Turn back in your Bible to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Do you know what Paul is calling them to do? Chapter 1, verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. All of these commands are echoes of that theme that has run throughout this letter. To stand firm in one spirit, to not be frightened by opponents. Live a life worthy of the gospel, no matter the circumstances. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you thankful that you never change. We are thankful that your love for us endures forever. We pray, God, that we would live lives worthy of the gospel, that we would pursue right relationships in our families, with other Christians, in this church, that even with those who are not believers, that as far as it depends on us, we would live peaceably with all. We pray, God, that you would remind us through our reading of the Bible, through the preaching of your word, that you would call to mind truth that would remind us of who you are and what you've done for us so that we can rejoice in the Lord always. 
We pray as opposition increases and the heat is turned up, even in our own culture, that we would not see gentleness as weakness, but rather we would let our reasonableness be known to all. And we pray, God, that you would help us to fight anxiety, that you would help us to trust you with the future, that we would look to who you are and how you have been faithful and you have never failed in the past and that we would trust you with the future, that we would think on what is true and not on what is uncertain and that we would obey you in all things, especially in considering others more important than ourselves. Make us a congregation, Lord, that lives worthy of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.